0: Last Lord's Day evening, we began a four-lesson series on the child of God. And There we talked about the happy child of God, and tonight we want to focus on the mature child of God. And then in the next two studies, which will bring us to the end of the year, we'll talk about the spiritual child of God and the assured child of God. Let's start with this concept, that it's an extreme honor to be considered a child of God. John would write in 1 John 3 and in verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Paraphrasing, what an honor and a privilege it is that God would call us his child. And so it is an honor to be a child of God. We demonstrate that honor by developing Christ-like attitudes. That if God will allow me to be called his child then I can respect that by trying to develop the Christ-like attitudes. So I encourage you to get a Bible and turn to the 12th chapter of the book of Romans. That's where we'll spend our time this evening. Our points will all be taken from Romans chapter 12. What we have in Romans 12 is it identifies several attitudes of the mature child of God. I don't think anyone could read Romans 12 and walk away saying these principles, these attitudes, these qualities do not describe a mature child of God, or they describe one that is immature. This obviously is describing one that is a mature child of God. You should be a happy child of God, but you should also be one who is a mature child of God. Not all children of God are as mature as they should be. So let's talk about the mature child of God. And we're focusing on his attitude toward a number of things that are described here in this context. Let's start with this at verse 1. His attitude toward his body. His attitude toward his body. Look at verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You see, caring for our bodies, our physical, literal bodies, is a matter of stewardship. Now we're going to have a number of passages on the screen. We're not going to take the time to read every one. We just give them for reference and connection. That a steward is one who is entrusted with the care and the management of that which belongs to another. A steward is said to be faithful. That is, a true steward is faithful according to 1 Corinthians 4 and in verse 2. So if you are a steward of your body, you are charged with the management and the care of something that actually belongs to another 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, our bodies are the temple of God, which means our bodies do not belong to us, they belong to God. So since our bodies belong to God and we're taking care of our bodies, we're taking care of something that doesn't belong to us but belongs to someone else. Now as stewards, we must do the following. If I'm a steward of my body, I must never neglect my body. I must never neglect it so that it's not cared for. I must furthermore daily discipline our bodies. Let's take the time to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, put a marker at Romans 12, we're coming back to that. <clears throat> First Corinthians chapter 9, the thought actually begins at verse 24, but we're going to skip down to verse 27, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. It gives the illustration of an athlete who's running track and field, and now he has to discipline his body, practice self-control in order to win the prize. And so he said, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. So likewise, we have the responsibility as a steward to daily discipline our bodies, to practice self-control, not only in things that we do with our bodies, but with the body itself, and then our bodies are to be used in the service of the Lord. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you will, chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, and in verse 10, what Paul talked about, here are things that have to do with his service in the ministry that he had identified in chapter 3, always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that he said that the life of Jesus may be also manifest in our body. What does he mean by that? Well, it's that our bodies are to be used in the service of the Lord. And so we are stewards of our body. But let's carry that a little bit further. God issues before us some challenges, and here's some challenges of being good stewards of our body. We're challenged to love and to cherish our body. In Ephesians chapter 5, no one ever hated his own flesh, Paul would say, but nourishes and cherishes it. Now there are some, exa- uh, some exceptions to that, but his point is, in a general rule, people do not hate their own bodies. They nourish their bodies and they cherish their bodies. So we have the challenge before us of loving our bodies and cherishing our bodies, taking care of our bodies. Colossians 3 talks about putting to death your members which are upon the earth. That is using your bodies to commit sin that bring about death. So, consequently, we're challenged to consider our bodies dead to things that are immoral. So you consider your body as separated from death. That's the idea of considering your body as dead. We have the challenge before us of considering our bodies and presenting them as, as living sacrifices. Go back to our text in Romans 12. Romans 12 and verse 1, that you present your body as a living sacrifice, as if you're presenting your body as a sacrifice that is alive before God and under God. And then Romans 6 and in verse 12, we have the challenge of resisting sin reigning in our bodies, that sin should not reign in your mortal body. In other words, don't let sin run rampant through your body. Now let's talk about some principles that will help us to be good stewards of our bodies. That is to take care of our bodies as we should first is the fact that the body was created for the Lord. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is in the context of talking about the sin of fornication and the abuse of the body in that regard. And notice in verse 13, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. That is, God created your body to be used in the service of Of the Lord, we see the same principle down at verse twenty. You were bought with a price; therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So, here is a principle that will help us to be good stewards of our body. The body was created for the Lord. The body is the temple of the spirit. The spirit indwells in the body. First Corinthians six, and in verse twenty, the body belongs to the Lord. We've already identified that in chapter six, verses nineteen and twenty. And then, how I use my body may determine my eternal destiny. And I'll cite two passages without going in detail. The catalogs of sin in those passages deal with things like fornication and adultery. Those are abuses of the body that will result in our eternal damnation. But let's go further in our text to verse two. The mature child of God is identified as one who has an attitude, the proper attitude, toward the world, found in verse two. Let's go to Romans chapter 12, if you've left there. Flip back over to verse 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. But here's the thing I learned, first of all, from verse 2, is we're not to be conformed to the world. The word world is the word for time or age, an eon. Now, let's turn over to Galatians chapter 1 to get a sampling of that. Galatians chapter 1, and in verses 3 and 4, particularly verse 4, speaking of Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from the present evil age. There's our term for the world or for the age. So the point is, don't be conformed to the present age. That's the idea in this context. Now, the idea of being conformed means to be fashioned or to shape like you're being shaped in a mold. So don't let the world mold you. Now let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4, and here's a danger. There is a danger that we may adopt at least some of the world's ways. So let's not confuse the idea that if I'm not conformed to all that the world is doing, I'm not being conformed to the world. I can identify a number of things where I'm not like the world, but I could be conformed in at least some of the ways. We recently studied from 1 Peter 4, where Peter said in regard to these they think it's strange that you do not run with them to the same flood of dissipation. That is they would like for you to run with full fledged in the full uh, uh, description of sin but you don't run in that even if you ran part of the way you're not running all the way with them. So here's the point. The point is there's a danger that we may adopt at least some of the pressures of the world upon us. Second Peter 1 verse 14 suggests that we should refuse to be shaped by the standards of the world in which we live. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 14. Turn over a couple of pages, 2 Peter 1 and in verse 14, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as the Lord Jesus has showed me. I'm going to put that off so I don't need to be shaped by the standards he said of the world that indeed is around me. I like Philip's translation, Philip's modern version of verse 2. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. And so here's my responsibility to the world as a mature child of God. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but in contrast, he said, be transformed. What does it mean by being transformed? It means to undergo a change. Undergo a change. That same word is translated transfigure. When Jesus was transfigured, Matthew 17, verse 2, it's the same word as being transformed. I'll not take the time to uh, trace Philippians 3, and 2 Corinthians 3, but the word transformed is used there in that same context to undergo a great change, a drastic change. Now, how is that transforming done? Let's go back to our text in Romans chapter 12. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. You see, your mind, your precepts, your conceptions, be shaped by your, your will and your emotions and your judgment. Colossians 3 talks about setting your mind on things that are above. In other words, have a spiritual mindset, and that spiritual mindset shapes your, is shaping your perception of the world. Now what we need to understand, and we'll just take a sampling of one of these verses, like 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 11 and in verse 3, that the mind is the battlefield of Satan. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. Paul said, I fear, lest somehow, as Satan deceived Eve, by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now notice he fo- focus on the fact that he talks about your minds may be corrupted. So the mind becomes the battlefield for Satan. Then we need to bring even our thoughts into subjection, chapter 10 and in verse five. Now the word renew suggests a re- renovation, making something different and making it new. So here is you're making your mind different, you're transforming your mind, transforming your lives by the renewing of your mind, by making the mind fresh and new again according to the will of God. Now how is that done? Or why would that be done? Well, we recognize that we're mere pilgrims pilgrims passing through the world. In fact, our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians chapter three and in verse 20. And during this time, we're to live separate from the world. Come out from among them and be ye separate. So what is the attitude of the mature child of God, Romans 12? The attitude toward his body, verse 1. The attitude toward the world, verse 2. Now let's go to verse 3. His attitude toward himself, in verse 3. Now what do I see in chapter 12 and verse 3? Go back to chapter 12 of the book of Romans, verse 3. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one the measure of faith. Now, what should be his attitude toward himself? Well, the mature child of God is humble. That's the point of verse 3. The same thing we'll see in just a moment at verse 16, that set your mind, do not set your mind on high themes, but condescend to men of low estate, the King James would say. So here is the point. The verse three is describing that uh, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, that describes humility. Now that's going to come when I realize who we are. When I realize that God is the great God and we are but mere men, then that makes that much easier, course, to do. James chapter uh, four, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. When I remember that I'm in the presence of the almighty God, then it becomes easier to bring yourself down close to the ground. Let's go back to Romans chapter 12 and in verse 16. This is in the same context. And that is that we are to bring our minds down. Do not set your mind on high things, but then notice, but associate with the humble, or the King James says, condescend to men of low estate. Bring yourself down. Rather than lifting yourself up above others, bring yourself down. And that is when you bring yourself down, you're condescending to men of low estate. Now, what is our attitude toward ourself? Well, we need to be humble, but we need to think, look at verse 3, but let every man not think more highly of himself than you ought to think, but let him be, uh, think soberly as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now, what does it mean he's to think soberly? Well, that means of sound judgment, reasonable, or it's also translated of being of a right mind, A.T. E. Robertson observes. And that is he's to think of himself as he really is. Now let's go to the end of the verse and then come back to the beginning of verse 3. He's to think of himself as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. What is the measure of faith? I don't think he's talking about that you have a measure or the degree of faith, the subjective faith that you have, that is your faith in God. And there, there is some relationship to that. But as for the context, because he goes on to deal with abilities that one has. I think he's talking about abilities. That could be in the days of spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts, those abilities. Or it could have reference in principle to those that are natural gifts. And so don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Be humble. In spite of the fact you have this ability. And so as you bring yourself down, think of yourself soberly. What does it mean soberly? That is, reasonable of sound judgment as God is dealt to every man the measure faith. In other words, think of yourself as you really are. And what does that mean? Commensurate with your abilities. In other words, the context is dealing again with varying abilities. Don't inflate yourself and your abilities as being greater than what you are. But neither on the other end do you deny or fail to use them. You see, one who says, I can't do anything and I have no abilities... That's not a a true sense of humility. That's false humility. But the one who says, I'm better than everyone else, smarter than everyone else, I'm more important than everyone else, that's not humility either. So he's arguing for a balanced view of yourself. Don't inflate yourself, but neither deny what you do have. So if you have an ability to do something, don't say, I can't do it. Then do it. Say, I can Let's put that in the modern context away from spiritual gifts. If you have the ability, for example, as a man to lead singing, don't say, no, I can't do anything. Say, I can do that. But don't say, I think I'm the best there ever was. There's a big difference. Keep a balanced view. So the mature child of God has a sober view with reference to his abilities. Now, what are some responsibilities we have toward ourselves? Well, let's list some others from other contexts. We have the responsibility to nurture ourselves. We've already cited Ephesians chapter five to nurture his own flesh. That might involve his, his, uh, himself spiritually. He needs to nurture himself spiritually. He may need to do that physically. He may need to do that mentally. He has a responsibility to control himself. As we noticed this morning, righteousness, judgment, righteousness, temperance and judgment to come, or righteousness, self-control and judgment to come, as was preached before Felix in Acts chapter 24. We have the responsibility to save ourselves, as was preached in Acts chapter 2 to the 3,000. We have the responsibility to consider ourselves lest we also be tempted. That is, as I'm dealing with others in their sins, I need to think about myself. How I'm often tempted and I might be in the same boat. Have the responsibility to keep myself pure. And keep myself free from the uh, sin and the lust that he mentions in 1 Timothy 5 and in verse 22. But let's go further. Let's go to verses 4 and 5. The mature child of God... We need to know what his attitude is toward his body, his attitude toward the world, his attitude toward himself, but the chapter also describes his attitude toward his brethren. What should be his attitude toward his brethren? Let's start with verses 4 and 5. His attitude toward his brethren is that we are a part of one another. Look at verse 4. For we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function, So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So what's the point? Well, we're members of of the same body. Just like a physical body and there are different organs that make up the same body. So each one of us are different members of the same body. Each one is dependent upon the other. And that is just like the physical body, the heart is depending on the lung and the lung is depending on the heart. The hand is depending on the foot and the foot is depending on the hand, etc. and on down the line. So we each are dependent upon one another. Though we're different, each one of us has our place. So you look at another member and you say, you know what, they're different than me. They have different abilities than me. They do different things than I do. And I'm not talking about sinful things, but they have different function, it seems like. There are things they can do that I can't, and I can do things that they cannot do. But each one of us have our place. So we're part of one another. That's the first attitude. Look at verses 9 and 10. We should have love for one another. Look at verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Above that which is evil, cling to that which is good. Be kindly affection to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another. In other words, our love for one another should be genuine without hypocrisy. In other words, don't kiss them to the face and then stab them in the back. So let love be without hypocrisy. Love is to be is, is, as was exemplified by Jesus. Is I have loved you, so you love one another. By this the world you will know you're my disciple. John chapter 13. 1 John 3, John would argue that we should love in deed and in, in word and in deed. That is, in our actions as well as in our words. More than saying we care, we should show that in our actions. Let's go to verse 13. We're still developing the idea of our attitude toward our brethren. Look at verse 13. We should be hospitable to one another. Look at verse 13. Distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality that is opening our hearts and opening our homes just as the friends of Jesus in Luke chapter 12, Mary and Martha opened their home to Jesus and entertained him while he was in their their midst. Verse 15, we should be empathetic to one another. Look at verse 15. Rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep. We should identify and understand the feelings and the situation of others. When they're weeping, identify with that and weep with them. When they're rejoicing, identify that and rejoice with them. Rather than weeping when they're rejoicing and rejoicing when they're weeping. Identify what their circumstance may be. Show that our care and our love and our consideration indeed is genuine toward them. Verse 16, another attitude toward our brethren is to be of the same mind. Look at verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. That's a striving for unity. In other words, striving to come together of the same agreement and the same mind. Rather than working against one another, how can I get in my way? <clears throat> but working toward unity, that's going to take the word, that's going to take right attitudes, as we see in Ephesians chapter 4. Philippians 2, that involved resolving differences. There was a plea to Yodia and Syntyche that they were to settle their differences. That was causing some degree of division there at Philippi. They were to be of the same mind to one another. Look at verse, 15, verse 18. Though this would apply to all men, this this would include dealing with our brethren, we're to be at peace with one another. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. The phrase, if it is possible, suggests it's not always possible. There's going to be times there's someone you can't get along with. There's going to be some friction that cannot be resolved. The point is, when he says, if it is possible, make sure you're not the one at fault. It's not a matter of blame, it's a matter of making sure that you can't be blamed. As much as depends on you means you do your part. You go the extra mile, live peaceably, live in harmony, and then he says with all men, those that I like and those that I have a hard time getting along with, we are to be peacemakers. Follow after things which make for peace. When there are differences of opinion, like in Romans 14, that is to be peacemakers. So that's our attitude toward our brethren. Now let's go to verses 6 to 8 now. And that is, here is his attitude toward his talents. Now we've already hinted at that at verse 3. That is, he's not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think soberly as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. But I'll notice beginning at verse 6, that having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given. I think that's perhaps parallel to that phrase back in verse three, the measure of faith. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given, let us use them. Now we'll finish those verses in a moment, but here's the first thing I'm seeing. That every child of God has talents. Every child of God has gifts. This is in the context of dealing perhaps with spiritual gifts. I say perhaps, I shouldn't say perhaps. It is dealing with spiritual gifts. For example, verse six, If prophecy, let us prophesy. Well, prophecy was a matter of spiritual gifts. So it is in the context of spiritual gifts, but there seems to be some other gifts that are dealt with in the context as well. So I put on the screen before you, it's in the context of spiritual gifts slash natural gifts. I think both are included in this context, at least the latter in application, if not immediately in the context. Now, all of us have talents, like the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. Your talent may be different from mine, mine may be different from yours. Our gifts are going to differ from one another, just like in the days of spiritual gifts. One would have the gift of tongues, but another would have the gift of interpretation. One has the gift of healing, and another has another gift. So they're differing gifts, obviously, and we have differing talents and differing gifts. All we're establishing is every child of God has talents, and every child of God has a gift. But furthermore, our responsibility toward our talents is what? Well, let's go back to verse 7. And in uh, verse 8, in fact, in verse 6, actually he said, Having been gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in the, uh, in the portion of our faith. Or ministry, let us use it to ministering. Or he who teaches in teaching, and he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality... He who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So what does he say about your attitude towards your talents or your gifts? Well, use them. Don't neglect your ability. Let's go back to verse 3. Don't neglect your responsibility or your ability. So if God has given you the ability, you may not have any ability except you can talk to someone and encourage them. You say, I can't take leading A role in service I can't teach a Bible class I can't do anything but I can talk to someone and encourage them then use that ability as the point don't neglect that ability go back to verse 3 I say through the grace given to me to everyone not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think don't be arrogant don't think you have abilities you don't don't think your abilities are better or greater or you're better at that than anyone has the same ability but but are you reading with me now Not to think of himself more highly than you ought to think, but to think soberly, commensurate with his abilities, in other words, as God has dealt to everyone the measure of faith. Don't deny that ability that you have. Don't lift it up, but then don't deny it either. So use it. Don't neglect that responsibility. God's going to call our abilities into account, like in the case of the talents. If you only have one talent, then you're expected to use that one talent. If you have ten, you're expected to use the ten. Now, our purpose... For the talents is to serve God and to serve others. Now, let's notice this in the context of Romans chapter 12. It might be the matter of teaching, like at verse 7. uh, On he who teaches in teaching. In other words, if you have the ability to teach, then teach. And so our purpose of our talents is to use it in the service of God. So if you have the ability to teach, then use that ability and you teach. If you have the ability, look at verse 8, on he who exhorts with exhortation. You might have the ability to encourage, all of us can to some degree encourage, but some have a knack for encouragement. They know the right words at the right time, and they can say it in a way no one else can. If you have that ability, then use it and encourage. If you have the ability to give, then give. Some can give more than others. And if you have the ability to lead, then lead. Use your abilities. But let's notice it verse 9 now. The mature child of God should have the right attitude towards sin in verse 9. What do we see at verse 9? Well, let's go back to verse 9 and see. Let love be without hypocrisy. Now, our focus point is what's his attitude towards sin? Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. The mature child of God should abhor and should hate sin. No, why? Well, one is because the passage here gives us the command to abhor that which is evil. But perhaps behind that is the fact that since sin is against God, do you remember Joseph, when he was tempted to commit the sin with Potiphar's wife, said, how can I commit this great wickedness and sin? And he didn't stop there, against God. He viewed sin as being against God. It's not just that it's, it's something that I shouldn't do, but it's against God so one of the reasons we should abhor and hate sin is it is against god we should abhor and hate sin since it's a transgression of god's law all sin is a transgression whosoever committed sin transgresseth also the law for sin is a transgression of the law the proverb writer would say this the fear of the lord is to hate evil by the way fear is a progressive thing, wherein I can have a degree of fear, but not the degree that I need. So as I grow in the fear of God, I should be growing in my hatred for sin. And so the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The psalmist would say that he hates every false way, not most false ways, but every false way. Quite often there's a lack of hatred for sin. Let's go to the book of Proverbs. We won't notice both of these, but let's go to the 10th division of Proverbs. And notice in Proverbs 10 and in verse 23 that often we mock sin, there's a lack of hatred for sin because we mock sin and we think it's something to be taken lightly, maybe even to joke about, something funny. Proverbs 10 and in verse 23, to do evil is like sport to the fool, much fun. Make fun of it, laugh about it, ridicule it. Nothing to be taken seriously. And so they're not hating and abhorring sin. How else do we do that? We may minimize sin. We may rationalize it, classify it. I mean, here is a lighter sin. Here's a real heavy sin that we should avoid. But these lighter sins are uh, are sins that that are okay. They're not that, that bad. Here's sins that separate from God, and here's sins that don't separate from God. Or we dismiss it, as we saw in the case of Felix And uh, when I have a convenient season, I'll call for you. When, When I have time to deal with spiritual things, I'll call for you. And so we therefore dismiss it. You see, the true nature of sin helps us to abhor it. So what are some things that will help me to learn that development of hatred for sin, recognizing the following? Sin is deceptive. None of us like somebody that lies to us. If you had a friend that always lied to you, that ceased to be your friend, you'd have no respect for them and you learn to develop a, an abhorrence for your relationship with them. Well, sin by its very nature is deceptive. We can be led through the deceitfulness of sin, Hebrews 3 and in verse 13. We ought to hate it because it deceives us. We ought to hate it because it's progressive, that it goes worse and worse. In fact, 2 Timothy 3 and in verse 13, not on the screen, that evil men wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But sin by its very nature is enslaving. That it captures us and enslaves us and brings us into bondage. You would hate someone who is constantly capturing you and putting you in jail for no reason at all. It's wasteful. Remember the prodigal son? He was wasteful. He wasted his time, he wasted his money, he wasted his abilities. And it's divisive because it separates us from our God. But those things help us develop a hatred for sin. Let's just a quick look in Romans chapter 12 at the mature child of God and what his attitude should be toward his body, toward the world, toward himself, toward his brethren, toward his talent, and toward sin itself. That's the mature child of God. God expects his child to be happy. God expects his child to be mature. We'll look at two other principles concerning the child of God in our studies that follow in the next two weeks. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come this evening, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come? While together we stand, and while.